Paul's letter to the Christians. So I tell you this, and insist it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so to indulge in every kind of impurity, with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Do take a seat. And if you've got a Bible and you've got Ephesians there, do open it up. And uh, let's continue. We've prayed really in that song, but let's pray again and ask the Lord to keep doing what we've just prayed. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Keep speaking until your church is built. Father, those are our great longings. Please speak into us. Recreate our minds by your spirit. Give us hearts that desire the things that you desire, that your church might be built up and that we might walk in your ways. For Jesus' sake, amen. Friends, tell me what to do. I've got certain friends and whenever I'm with them, I end up grumbling. I know that I shouldn't do it. I know it's wrong. I don't want to do it. Uh, if for no other reason than when I leave them. I kind of feel bad that I've just spent my time grumbling. So before I go and see them, I, I, I determine I will not grumble today. I pray, Lord, help me not to grumble today. And yet a few sips into my flat white and I'm grumbling. I know in my head it's wrong. I determine in my will not to do it. And yet I do. What is going on there? Well, in order to understand what's going on, we need to get an idea of how sin works. And um, today's passage, I think, gives us that. Look at verse 17. Paul says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. That is, as the unbelievers do, as, as we once did if we're a Christian before we're Christians. And what Paul then goes on to do is not give us a pep talk, 
so much as a masterclass. First, he shows us the theory, verses 18 19, how sin works. And then, verses 20 to 24, he shows us how gospel transformation is possible. And then, from verse 25 onwards, he gives us some case studies, some examples of how this works out. And what I hope to do this morning is to show us the theory and then apply it to the case studies that we might see how we can get greater victory over sin. So let's look at this first thing, 18 and 19, the way of sin or how sin works. Let me tell you my headline. In any moment in which we sin, we sin because we desire or we love or we fear something more than we desire or we love or we fear God. Let me say that again. In any moment in which we sin, we sin because we desire or we love or we fear something more than we fear or desire or love God. As I sit in that coffee shop, I sin because I desire something more than doing what is right. And uh, so I grumble. And this word desire is, is the word our passage uses in verse 22. But other places in the Bible, the same idea would be love or worship or fear. And we're often not conscious of this process, but knowing it's going on in our hearts helps us to uproot it and fight it as we speak the gospel into our lives. Well, notice in these verses, there's a problem with our minds and our hearts. And in the Bible, the mind and the heart really are the the same thing. But look at verse 17. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Thinking here is the mindset, our understanding of the way the world works. And it's often intuitive, isn't it? We don't know why we think the, the world works in a certain way, but we all have an idea of how the world works. But the problem is, before we were Christians, it was futile because it was not in line with the way God created the world. And the result is, verse 18, they are, or we were, darkened in our understanding and separated from the life of God. We were unable to see the world rightly, and so we cut ourselves off from God and his blessings. And see why that is. It's because of their, or our, ignorance that was in us due to the hardening of our hearts. We construct a view of the world that either disregards God or so pushes him to the fringes of things that we don't need to honor him or glorify him. He doesn't really matter. And this is not just ignorance in the sense of not knowing something. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's due to our hearts being hard, a deliberate refusal to live in the light of the way the world is, a turning away from God. And verse 22 makes clear what's implicit in all of this. It's not just about our intellect. It's about our desires. Verse 22, in our former way of life, our old self was corrupted by our deceitful desires. Do you see what's going on here? Our thinking goes haywire, and so do our desires, what we love, what we worship. It gets scrambled, and the result is, verse 19, an ignorant, hard heart that's lost all sensitivity, so we give ourselves over to sensuality to indulge in every kind of impurity. The sexual overtones are clear in that kind of language, but it's much broader than that. Every kind of impurity. In a world that proclaims greed is good, where my value is a product of how much stuff I have and how many experiences I can accumulate, 
it's no wonder that people desperately end up chasing more and more money, even if it means doing something illegal, so that we can acquire more and prove our value. And do we see the more we indulge, the end of verse 19, we end up in a continual lust or greed for more. Our desires are never satiated. And so do you see we've got three things in play here? We've got our thinking and our desires and then the actions that flow from it. And it's not always clear which comes first. It's not obvious which one is is pulling the the train, as it were. So think of, um, if you're like me, you realize you're getting a little bit fat. And you realize that uh, that the sugary buns that that you've been eating or I've been eating are making me fat. Well, as I realize that, it changes my desire. Suddenly, I, I don't want those sugary buns quite so much. But then other times it works the other way, doesn't it? I remember rather self-righteously as a 10-year-old declaring I would never eat meat again for the sake of the poor animals I was eating. And I'm sure my family thought I was gone rather mad. But rather than arguing with me, my grandmother very wisely waited till dinner time and fried some sausages. And as the smell wafted through my house and that desire for those sausages rose in me, I quickly reevaluated my thinking. And you see how they sometimes work in different directions. But in recent times, it would seem that Christians have overplayed the value of thinking. Now, we mustn't downplay it, but we, we sometimes do that when we listen more to the Enlightenment than the Bible, when we think that we are brains on sticks. But actually, it's pretty clear we're not brains on sticks. We think sometimes, if only I could show that person the truth, then they'd, they'd change their ways. And yet sin is often irrational, isn't it? We know that. I know if I have another helping of ambrosia, I'll feel sick. And yet I want it. And so I have it, and I feel sick. The problem's not with my knowledge. It's something deeper. And the reality is the Bible says we're not just thinkers. We're lovers. We're worshippers. We're fearers. We desire things, as our passage here, verse 22, puts it. And it's really important to see what these desires are. First of all, to see that they're not necessarily bad. Desires are are God-given. Sometimes we act as if, if only I could just squash all my desires and become some kind of stoic, then, then life would be good. But no, God has given us desires. Think Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Desire the kingdom of God. It's a good desire. Or the desire to to love people or or be loved by people is a good thing. The problem is our desires deceive us. They lie to us. They persuade us that the object of our desire is needed more than it is. Or our desires become disordered and we seek a good thing in the wrong place. Just think about how that works with sexual lust. I think we'd be quick to say that, that lust, sexual lust, is a bad thing. But actually, drill down. Somebody who's driven by lust, what is going on in their heart? Well, often they're yearning for intimacy. And the problem is is not the desire for intimacy. That's a good God-given thing. It's that we seek that desire in the wrong place. Or sometimes it's a desire for pleasure. And again, pleasure's a good thing. It's a God-given thing. And yet the problem is we we desire it too much and our lust drives us to, to take it where we should not find it. They're not, it's not that it's bad, it's that it's disordered and we've been deceived. 
satisfy our desires. Now, clearly, this is complicated. Clearly, we can't just say, that was my desire. We're we're a muddle of all kinds of thoughts and feelings and thinking. But But knowing that this process is going on helps us to unscramble our sin. And the wonderful thing is that the gospel frees us from these lies. It gives us a new way of thinking. It gives us a new mind with new desires, which helps us to walk the new walk of Christ. And that's the second thing I want to see, the way of Christ, or, or the way of gospel transformation. Look at verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And you see, as we hear about Jesus, as we learn about Jesus, we're given a new view of the world, a right view of the world. Not where God is on the fringes, but one that was created by God for him. We learn that we as humans have a purpose to glorify God, that we're made in his image, and that we find our greatest fulfillment when we we serve him. And we see as we hear the gospel that we've turned from serving and loving him to seeking our own pleasures. And yet contrary to what our deceitful desires say, sin has a consequence. Not only does sin not satisfy in the way our desires promise, but it brings us under God's wrath. It alienates us from him and from one another. And yet the gospel also tells us of a saviour who came to pursue us, to rescue us from our desires, from God's wrath, and to bring us into relationship with God the Father, to give us a new family together, and enables us to love and to serve him in the way we should, to find true fulfillment in the right place. Well, that's, that's the big kind of new truth of the gospel, isn't it? But it doesn't just tell us a new truth. The gospel changes our hearts. Look at verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see the parallel there? Put off the old and put on the new. And what is the characteristic of the old? It's that it's being corrupted by these deceitful desires, whereas the new is being made new, renewed in the attitude or or the spirit of our minds. And do you see what it doesn't say? It doesn't say make your minds new. No, they are being made new. That wonderfully God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, is making our minds new. But we cooperate, don't we? We are to put the old off and put the new on. I think the image is of, um, of clothes. Imagine if this afternoon you go out into your garden and you, you do some yard work and, and maybe you've got some leaves that have begun to rot and, and you kind of dig them up and put them in your wheelbarrow and by the end of the afternoon you, you're covered in filth and, and the leaves stink because they've begun to rot and you're definitely soaked. And you come back inside and and you just want to take off those old clothes, those stinking clothes, and put on some nice new warm clothes. And that's the image, isn't it? Except it's not something external, clothes are on the outside of us. It's put on a new mind, put off the old corrupted mind and put on the new one that God is making new. And isn't that wonderful? He's renewing our minds so we can think what he thinks. He's renewing our hearts so we can love what he loves. He's given us the promised Holy Spirit so we can desire what he desires. And as we put off the old and put on the new, what happens? 
we live like God in true righteousness and holiness? What does it mean to put on and put off or put off and put on? It's surely in part to examine our hearts and think, why did I do that? What was going on in that moment of madness in my mind? What was I believing that the gospel tells me I do not need to believe? What was I fearing that that Jesus says I don't need to fear anymore because of the gospel? And then it shows us how we can rearrange what we love, what we desire, what we believe to follow him in the light of the new truth. That's surely why Paul has been praying in Ephesians. Do you remember, he's taught us all these great truths, but he hasn't just taught them, he's then prayed for them, that they'd grasp us in our hearts, in our inner beings. The beginning of the 19th century, a pastor called Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the point of the sermon was that we don't, when we we get rid of love for sin and love for the world, we do it by driving it out with a new love, a new affection for Christ and for his gospel. And, And that is what Paul urges us here, I think, to do. I'd love to just drill down and show us how that works with some of these case studies. But before I do, just let me show how this can not work. It's so easy, isn't it, in some ways, to change our behavior with the wrong desires. Excuse, I realize I've got quite a few personal examples. Excuse another one. When I was 14, I began to hate school. I, I'd, I'd always quite liked school, I think. Uh, when I, a few months before I was 14, I moved to a new school. And for various reasons, certain teachers there started making my life miserable. I'm sure I was probably a bit of a brat. But there was bigger stuff going on in the background with them. With, um, my mum, who worked the education board, and these teachers decided to take it out on me. And I got very down and, and started not working and, and being a real pain in the neck, I think. And I remember getting to the point where I said, when I'm 16, I'm going to leave school and I'm never coming back. I'm going to get a job. I'm done. And my form tutor got hold of me. And he said to me, I know that some of those teachers are being pretty harsh on you. Uh, but if you want to show them, don't mess about, don't, don't disrupt their classes. Uh, let me tell you what to do. Keep your head down, work really hard, uh, leave here with good results, go to university, get a good degree, and come back and show them. Show them that you're better than them. It's got an incredible thing for a teacher to say of his colleagues, isn't it? But do you know that was transform- tr- transformatory? From that day on, I kept my head down and I worked hard. I think I got in those classes the, the top marks in that year. On paper, it looked a great change. A guy who's going off the rails, to, to a model student. But do you see what it was driven by? As I got those results, I was driven by anger, by a desire to, to prove myself, avenge myself on those teachers. And it was very effective, but it made me very ungodly. And sometimes uh, we think we can fight one sin with another. Somewhere, I haven't been able to find out where, but somewhere I'm, I'm pretty sure... Uh, I hope I'm not doing him a disservice. I'm pretty sure that C.S. Lewis encourages us to fight anger with pride. So someone's got a short temper. The way to deal with it is is to remember, is to be proud in yourself. You mustn't show your short temper in public. You're better than that. So so fuel your pride and and your kind of fear of of revealing your anger and let that drive out your anger. You won't be angry in public because you're afraid of saving face. And the problem is, that's very effective. We stop being angry, but we've become proud. 
And I fear that sometimes, if we're not careful, we do that with our parenting. We, we, we use a carrot and a stick, don't we, with, with our kids. And in a sense, of, of course we do. We need to do that. But the great danger is if we don't go beyond that, if we don't aim for our children's hearts, if we don't preach to our children the gospel of Christ, if we don't help them to see their sinful desires and root them up, then what are we doing? If we're not careful, we're, we're, making, we're changing their behavior very, very well because they fear our punishment or because, or because we're fueling their idolatry, their love for whatever it is we reward them with. And we need to drive the gospel into them, to root up their sinful desires, help them to do that, and replace it with the good desires of Christ. Well, how do we do that? Let me unpack a couple of these case studies. We're not going to do them all uh, because we haven't got time, and partly because I'd love you to do that at home. But, but see what's going on in all of these case studies. Do you see some more clearly than others, but in all of them, I think, there is a put-off and a put-on and then a reason. So look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. Rather, put on the new self. What's the new self? Speak truthfully to your neighbors. And then he gives a reason. We are members of one body, and uh, falsehood destroys the body. Remember how important the body, the church is in Ephesians. Don't destroy the body that Christ has created. But I don't think Paul's just fussed about the action of lying, is he? He's told us all this stuff about hearts and minds. He loves us to think what's going on in our hearts and minds. And it's worth thinking, what is going on? When I'm tempted to lie, I, I, I take it there'll be as many different things going on in our hearts and minds as there are people and situations. But imagine I'm tempted to lie. Maybe I'm tempted to lie to you because I've done something that um, I'm quite embarrassed if you found out, and I, I don't want to admit it. And I'm frightened of admitting it, so I lie. Or maybe I, I really like you, and I really want you to like me, and I'm frightened that if I'm myself, if I'm truly honest with you, I'll, uh, you'll run away from me. You won't like me. And so I, I play up my good points and play down my bad. Now, do you see this? the results the same? Two kind of lies or exaggerations, and yet the heart underneath is totally different. To the first... We, I, I need to hear the wonderful word of the gospel that every sin is washed away. That Though I've done something to upset you, I can admit it because Jesus has forgiven me. I'm saved by grace. And as I grasp hold of that truth, I don't need to be frightened of owning up to my sin. But to the other, I need to hear that I'm secure in Christ, that Jesus is my brother. The Lord God of the universe is my father. And though I'd love you to like me, if you don't, well, that's fine because I'm safe in Christ. And as we put off the old, as we see what's going on, we're able to, to uproot that evil desire, dis disordered desire, and replace it with a good gospel desire that helps me to speak the truth in love to you as I long to build you up, long to build the body up. Or look at the next one. In anger, do not sin. Literally, be angry and do not sin. You can see why they translated it like that. Surely Paul isn't encouraging us to be angry, but I think he is. Think what anger is. Anger is an emotion, a, a reaction, a, a response that says, I'm against that. Uh, the problem with anger, though, is we're so often against the wrong things, and we're indifferent to the things we should be against. I used to live opposite a pedestrian crossing, 
And it was one of those crossings where people walk up to it and the cars are supposed to stop. And so often these cars wouldn't stop, they'd whiz by. And I'd stand there and I'd get very angry. Well, why am I getting angry? In part, I'm getting angry because it's dangerous. Kids might be crossing the pedestrian crossing. But the main reason I'm getting angry is because the great James Ballinger wants to cross the road and these cars are stopping the great James Ballinger crossing the road. I'm angry. I'm against that in capital letters. And you see, the problem is my values are out of kilter. It's all about the great James Ballinger. Don't stop to think that maybe that guy's rushed through because he's on his way to the hospital. And the gospel says to my heart, you are not the center of the universe, that you should cultivate being patient, even if somebody wrongs you by, by cutting you up on that pedestrian crossing. And it's as I get hold of the gospel and work out what's going on in my heart, I'm able to put on, put off the old and put on the new. Do you see how this works? But other times I should be angry and I'm not. When we see others' sin affecting people, it should make us angry, shouldn't it? When we see people trapped in poverty or we see racism or we see some of the kind of crazy abortion stuff we've seen in New York, it should make us angry. But so often we're indifferent because it doesn't affect us. Yeah, it's bad, but it doesn't affect the great James Ballinger, so who cares? And yet the gospel teaches us to value what God values. Be angry, but when we do, do not sin. Be like Jesus, who often was angry, but at the right things in the right way. And then when we do get angry, be quick to resolve it. Resolve not to let the sun go down on your anger, which I take it's not meant to be applied literally. Otherwise, we'd be able to get more angry in the summer, wouldn't we, with the long days? That's clearly not what he means. But the principle is true, isn't it? Don't stew on it. Don't resolve it quickly. And work out what is in our hearts that that makes us hold on to it and put it off and put on the new. And here's the reason. Because if we don't, the devil will get a foothold and destroy our fellowship, which is so central to everything he said in Ephesians. Or verse 28, stealing. I'll, I'll let you unpack stealing at home, but... Just notice the pattern, put off stealing, put on doing something useful so that we can share with others. And it's just worth saying, stealing's far more common. I made a, a silly joke in the start of me about, about stealing not being common, and they all looked at me and said, of course it's common. Think about what we download or what we copy or um, maybe the way we rob our employer by not, taking, not giving him the labor he's paying for us or the way we massage our tax returns. And it's worth thinking not just what is the action, but what's going on in the heart. What is it that we love that makes us steal? What is it we fear that prevents us being open-handed and generous? Or verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's the big, where I started, isn't it? In the coffee shop with our friends. And instead of building each other up, we grumble. Well, why do we do that? Is it because we want to bond over grumbling? Grumbling is a great way to bond, isn't it? If you, I was going to say, if you don't know it, try it, but don't try it. It, 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 When we don't know what to say to someone, sometimes we grumble, don't we? And we instantly find common ground as we grumble. Or maybe it's my arrogance as I, I look down on those people I'm grumbling about. Or it's maybe it's my grumpiness with God that I would run the world differently. And you see, whatever it is, we need to identify it so that we can be set free from it by the gospel and preach the truth 
to ourselves. It's not enough to know that it's bad. It's not enough to want to change. We need to, to wrestle with what is going on deep in it and then apply the gospel of Jesus to it. And it may just be for some. We need to go back through our Twitter feed or our Facebook wall and, and see some of the things we've said that you think, I, I would never normally say that. And ask what on earth was going on in our hearts and our minds when we said those things. And what is it we need to believe so that instead of saying those things, we build one another up. We can grieve God with the way we we live. And we're told he's the Holy Spirit. So I take it grieving him means don't do anything unholy. We're told early in the chapter he's the one spirit. Don't do anything that breaks unity. But rather desire what he wants. Walk in step with him. And then verse 31. Get rid of all these angry things. All bitterness, rage, anger brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. All of those things belong to the old self, the ignorant self, the hard-hearted self. Get rid of them and replace them with the God-given new self. And what does that new self look like? Be kind and compassionate. Don't be bitter or angry or malicious, but forgive one another. And do we see again the motive? What's the motive? Forgive one another just as Christ, uh, just as God in Christ forgave you. And he's saying, melt your hearts with the gospel. Why would we seek revenge? Why would we be malicious and slander others when we remember that Christ came to forgive us all of those things, that God could have been malicious and vindictive to us, but rather poured out his great love for us? And as we get hold of that, we we can let go of our petty grievances because God has forgiven us so much and replace it with this desire to be like God and to forgive Well, friends, we're out of time, and we've whizzed through those studies, but can I encourage you, over lunch, why not get hold of one of these and and say to the people you're having lunch with, or or maybe in your small group uh, this week, get hold of one of these case studies and and say to each other, when was the last time I got angry and sinned? Or when was the last time I let unwholesome talk come out of my mouth? And, And work out what was going on in my heart at that moment. I knew it was wrong. I didn't want to do it. Why did I do it? And that's where helping each other, we get an insight from each other, don't we, as to what's going on. We say, well, well I, I, maybe you're not like me, but when I get angry, it's like this. And then we're able to speak the gospel into each other, not through guilt, but secure, forgiven by Jesus Christ. What is it the gospel teaches us to love or believe or cherish that drives out that bad desire? Well, friends, our thoughts and our desires drive us to these terrible behaviors. The gospel sets us free. It gives us a new heart, a new love, a new mind. So put off the old, put on the new, that we may walk in the way of Christ. And let's help each other this week to do that. Let me say a prayer. And then I'm thrilled we've got an item. And as we listen to the item, uh, let's ponder these things. Let's ask the Lord, to use the words, we're going to uh, take my life and let it be, that he would do that in our lives. And maybe just thinking about our hearts, thinking about the gospel, that he might change us. Word of prayer, and then they'll come and sing to us. Heavenly Father, we long uh, 